Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming up. On ABC Radio. She always said working on Fakatsi and being one of the speakers at the town hall at Martin Place for NAIDOC week and a whole lot of other stuff, that it was the first time people had heard us tell our own stories. And so that gravitation of being able to share real stories with people was really important for her. And it's the reason why the country sort of woke up and went, oh, my gosh, we've got a whole community of people that don't live the same way that we do. Children of the Revolution, this is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. As debate around the most appropriate way to mark our National Day reignites, this week on Speaking Out, an intimate insight into the history of Indigenous activism, as told by those continuing the fight for sovereignty and self-determination. Children of the Revolution, a panel discussion hosted by the Australian Museum, saw Pauline Clegg, Nicole Watson and Gunnar Maynard consider their parents' legacy and impact on modern Australia. Pauline Clegg is a filmmaker and artistic director of Winder Film Festival. She's been a driving force in the creation and sustainability of the Indigenous voice in Australian screen and television for over 25 years. Gunnar Maynard is a lawyer and social policy advocate. He's advocated for social and policy change in Indigenous affairs and is currently working as an associate in the Federal Court of Australia. Nicole Watson is a leading legal scholar, novelist and the director of Neurogilly Academic Programs at UNSW. We begin with Pauline Clegg. Her mother, Joyce Clegg, was influential in instigating the 1967 constitutional referendum and was subsequently awarded the Member of the British Empire in recognition of her services to combat racism. I mean, I love talking about my mum and I love talking about my dad, my mum, Joyce Clegg, MBE. When I walked in here this morning, actually, I remembered because she was the first Indigenous person that um, was a board member at the Australian Museum. And I used to, there used to be a T-Rex just in one of the hallways over here. And I used to play around here when I was a little kid. And she used to always take us down to the basement to look at stuff. And I just remember thinking about the fact that she gave all of us as kids the privilege to see deeper, to see the stories that were laid underneath the story of the earth. And I think that's something that I'm really proud of and I I acknowledge her and all the other people that have walked before us and acknowledge the land that we're on today, the Gadigal people. My mum's from the north coast of New South Wales. She was born on a reserve in Alagundi Island and she was one of those people that... Maybe because she lived on water, she saw more than just the land. She saw an impact of what she needed to do both for her country here as well as for overseas. She always had a bigger story than just the national story and the community story, but she always went back to the community to do work there before she branched out to the bigger stories. I've never been able to get her biog right because she worked across many fields. And sometimes it was by chance. She came to Sydney in 54, 55 as a training nurse at St Margaret's Hospital and saw that she needed to do more than just be a nurse. 
I think she was one of those people that, when I look at the work that she's done, is predominantly known internationally really well and not very well nationally, even though she was a part of the Fakatsi movement with other people like Charles Perkins and Udra Nunaku and she was the secretary for a very long time at Fakatsi. She was the first Indigenous field officer for, for the foundation here in Sydney. She worked with the ombudsman around the Redfern raids. She was always working to try and change something. I remember the story that she told when we did the documentary on her and dad. When they found out that they were selling the island, she decided that she needed to get it back. And so she flew at the time we were living in Alice Springs and she flew from Alice Springs to Sydney to talk to the Premier of New South Wales and say, you can't sell our land, that's ours. And it was seen as the first land back to a community before land rights. And then she helped to write the Green Paper for New South Wales. She's a founder of so many different organisations like the New South Wales Land Councils and co-ops around New South Wales and around Northern Territory that it's really hard to sort of like compact in a very short time, the work she did. And she was one of those people that I think for me started to really sing when she met our father in a way because he gave her as a utopian sort of love support. She gave him the support that she needed to excel on another level. She then started really doing the work that she needed to do on the international scale with both WILF, the Women's International Peace Foundation, and through World Council of Churches. She was a part of the, which is, I suppose, the reason why she got the MBE. So she was a part of that, Pastor Doug herself and a couple of others that got the MBE, the More Black Than Ever Award, (laughs) that they all call it. And it, it was a part of the program to combat racism, which was a paper about the churches, the World Council of Churches, had delivered where she was the Australian rep that helped to pen that report and the infiltration and the lack of acknowledgement that churches had to do with reservations. I think she always saw an injustice. Her mum died when she was... That's her, the tall one in the back... She always saw an an injustice and around that age, she was eight, uh, her mother passed away and she passed away because she was giving birth to twins and, of course, back then there was the separation and they weren't allowed into the hospital and she died because there was a rain that happened uh, and she was on the veranda and her mother caught pneumonia and her and the children passed. So I think mum, there's a whole story about mum got in a boat and sort of rowed across the island by herself to go to the hospital to try and save her mother. And it was a sense of injustice that started and triggered her big campaign for herself of realising that something wasn't quite right. And then when her aunt came home to look after her and her brothers and sisters that were still around, she understood this impact that that whole conversation had around her, her, her aunt had worked in communities out in farms and was a cleaner for people and, and 
didn't get paid well. And so that part of the stolen wages concept was something that she just couldn't understand. She talks about Fakatsi and the fact that she has a famous line where she says, you know, they used to count sheep, but they couldn't count us. And I couldn't understand why we weren't counted. And it sort of kind of made you really realise that there was this definite spirit that she had as a really young girl. I think for me, growing up with that sort of energy, we, we were always seen to be quite privileged. Like, I thought I was quite privileged. I also just didn't understand that people were famous around us. You know, I knew that Uncle Goff was someone because <laughs> he was sort of kind of mentioned, but it didn't... Re- like, he was just someone that I, you know, knew. I knew that Neville Rand, Uncle Neville, was sort of kind of someone famous because when we went to dinner with them, there would always be a photographer wanting to take photos of us. I remember the time Grace, my, my ex- oldest, one of my older sisters, spilt milk on him because she was laughing and we had to... <laughs> the look on Mum was like, oh, my God, you girls, just as the cameraman was about to take a photo and she stood in front of the camera to hide the fact that my sister had sprayed milk all over him so that she could get this sort of kind of impact away and clean his things so that we could get nice photos. She was always supportive of women. She was such a strength in that area and she was always supportive of us as girls. We're all girls in our family, so um, our dad has a lot of grey hairs, we say. I think that's something that's quite remarkable about people like her, that vision and take an incident of hardship for themselves and turn it into such a positive momentum as they move forward in life. I think, I'm not sure what her greatest impact is. I remember one time when I was shooting the Maralinga documentary and this old woman was speaking to me in Pidinjara and I couldn't understand what she was saying and uh, she had put my face together with my mum and my father and when I asked the person next to me what she'd said, he said, oh, your mummy and daddy helped her get her children back and she just wanted to... She could connect that you were the face of Joyce and Colin's kid and it was a moment where I just sort of like... I'd always grown up with mum in the history books of, you know, as a as a teenager in school, but I'd never quite realised that impact until that hit me. The fact that there were people that had such a moment of realisation of her impact that I hadn't really thought about. You know, I knew she always had that thing of trying to give children back because when we were growing up, we were always surrounded by other kids and driving around Northern Territory, dropping them off. I just didn't know that that was such an impact for us. The fact that she and Dad met in 1964 in the Philippines at a sort of children, uh, not children, student conference in the Philippines was something that I think made her quite joyful and and the realisation that she was always going to be international the fact that even though he's Australian, she met him over there. He's from the Isle of Man, actually. He's, his grandfather's from the Isle of Man. And so they sort of kind of just... Dad says he was the skinny white guy that 
just couldn't stop chasing her and she couldn't stop getting him to get away from her. So they just kept hanging around each other and he kept chasing her around her work. He became her policy guide at times. He, the, the one thing that was really prominent when they had to go to... Mum had to go to Geneva as a part of the program to combat racism report down in late May in 70, 1970 and she was pregnant and had Grace on the 1st of May. So three days into Eve, uh, Grace's birth, she had to get a photo with her in Alice Springs because they were in Alice Springs. So it was also that management of something that wasn't in the digital space at the time, had to get a passport and two weeks later she was in a plane going to India and then Geneva and Dad was the nanny and everyone thought it was really weird that this, you know, husband was the nanny at the time. She was forward-thinking and I think he knew that she was forward-thinking and he went for the ride with her. I was telling these mob a story about what does the public never know about them? I don't know. There's a couple of stories, but I think the one that really... Joan Woodbury is a famous author in Australia. She wrote children's books and uh, she taught my mum when she was a little girl. And uh, she came from Yamba or Palmer's Channel, I think, near Mum's Island. And she wrote Come Back Peter and the little girl that's there is based on my mother and that's something most people don't know. And I was saying the thing that I find really remarkable about that is that I think she always had a spirit that people gravitated towards and wanted to engage with. I think, you know, she always said working on Focazzi and being one of the speakers you know, at the town hall at Martin Place for NADOC week and a whole lot of other stuff that, you know, it was the first time people had heard us tell our own stories. And so that gravitation of being able to share real stories with people was really important for her. And it's the reason why the country sort of woke up and went, oh my gosh, we've got a whole community of people that don't live the same way that we do. And I think it's the reason why I turned to filmmaking is because she gave me an understanding of what voice was. I always thought I was either going to be the Prime Minister, actually, <laughs> or um, I was going to change the Learn Rights Act so I was going to become a lawyer. And then halfway through law, <laughs> I watched To Kill a Mockingbird, which is the reason why I thought I was going to be a lawyer, and realised it was the film, not the not wanting to be abacus, that I... Um, loved the film so much. Um, so, but, it, but what it did was it made me realise how much she gave us the knowledge of how important it was to capture the truth of voice and to share it with the rest of the world, that there is so much that needs to be done in this country and you have to do the work back in community. You know, you have to go back to your own community and ground yourself, that... You can do the national stuff, but also that international plays a part in the way in which 
politics listens to our people. Uh, she learnt that through, I think, both the Bob Hawke era and, and before that, that if you had an international voice connection, then the government would listen to the organisations and the people a lot more. I think she's most proud of the fact that that little there's a little tiny tin shack on the island and it's still there. The fact that she was brought up in it and she still gets to see it's the only house that's left now on the island. She gets to see it and remind herself of where she came from. She's a little bit of a hoarder because, you know, I think she comes from that era of people that didn't have anything. She brought, she brought for, our, for her aunt an electric jug that has never been used because there was no electricity on the island, but she hadn't thought about that when she brought it. And so it sits in a pride of place in our family when we were kids and, and that memory of where she came from inspired us to want to be a part of the movement as well. I hope she's proud of all, you know, all of us. I hope, you know, that we've done her right in being a part of the footprint that impacts this country. And that's my mum. Thank you so much, Pauline. It's now my real privilege to introduce to you all Nicole Watson, who's a Birigaba and Mananjali person. Nicole comes from an, an amazing family and I suspect much like Pauline's expressed, she would meet people all the time who she would not realise had been so influenced by her father and her mother. Even myself, my first trip overseas, they basically chaperoned me and looked after me and were always so generous. Nicole's dad, Sam Watson, is one of, not just one of the, you know, profoundly important figures in terms of his advocacy, but I think is one, was one of the great thinkers uh, and intellects of the movement as well. So when I had the privilege to get to know Nicole better and as a legal scholar as well, engage with her work, uh, perhaps it isn't surprising that I think that she's one of the our best Indigenous legal thinkers. Her style of leadership is very modest and behind the scenes, but um, I want to share with you that she has been profoundly influential in terms of her writings around property law. Not that she's always shy about it. I think she was one of the really clear, strong voices that argued eloquently and importantly fact-based, evidence-based against the Northern Territory intervention, particularly deconstructing its impact on Indigenous property. A lot of what she predicted at the time came to pass. But that influence continues. I think for me, much like Pauline and the way that Pauline sort of brings other people with her, I observe that in Nicole as well. She's incredibly supportive and generous with the students she has seen her in the academy people respond to her but I think also importantly I'd share her intellectual work continues Nicole has led a really groundbreaking legal project that is really challenging the way that judicial decision making hasn't included Indigenous storytelling but should 
And I think it's, a, to me, a reflection of Nicole's inclusive leadership style that in doing that project, she got a lot of us in the academy involved in it so we could, in a practical way, start to see what she was um, pushing us to look at. So in those very profound ways, uh, Nicole herself is leaving a legacy. But I will turn over to her now to talk about the big footsteps she follows in. Uh, good afternoon, and uh, today I'll be talking about my father, Sam Watson. Dad's story begins in Brisbane in 1952. Samuel William Watson was the second child of Sam and Eunice Watson. Dad grew up with a great deal of love, and he was particularly close to his maternal grandmother, Granny Roberts. My grandparents worked very hard to provide for their six children, but times were difficult. Poverty and racism were enormous burdens that they carried each day. This was a time when Aboriginal people in Queensland were gaining their freedoms from an oppressive regime that had its origins in an 1897 law called the Aboriginal's Protection um, and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act. This act was a forerunner of laws that made generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people vulnerable to removal to reserves where all aspects of their lives were subject to official control. As wards under the Act, they did not enjoy the freedom of movement, had to seek permission to marry, and families were vulnerable to losing the care of their children. Before Dad was born, our forebears had obtained an exemption from this awful piece of legislation. But even Aboriginal families who were free remained vulnerable to intimidation by the Queensland Department of Native Affairs and its notorious director, Patrick Killoran. Killoran was responsible for so many atrocities suffered by the very people whom his department was supposed to protect. It was on Killoran's orders that Aboriginal families in Mapoon were removed from their homes at gunpoint in 1963. Killoran took a personal interest in the surveillance of Aboriginal families and he was staunchly opposed to the payment of award wages to Aboriginal workers on reserves. During Dad's childhood, he formed strong bonds with aunts and uncles whose incomes were managed by the Department of Native Affairs. On occasion, he would accompany them to the department's office in George Street in Brisbane and watch as they suffered the indignity of having to ask public servants for their weekly pocket money under the gaze of Caloran. The aunts and uncles would point out Caloran to Dad and warn him to stay clear of him. Dad would come face to face with Caloran at the age of 17 when he was summonsed to the director's office. Decades later, Dad would reflect on that meeting on the program Hindsight. To Dad's surprise, Caloran knew much about our family. He was also aware that Dad was a promising student who aspired to study law. Caloran warned Dad against associating with any of the communists and political agitators whom he was likely to meet at university. Caloran ended their meeting with the words, I'll be watching you. Although Dad's, uh, Dad was left shaken after that meeting, Caloran's uh, warning was pointless. By then, Dad had already fallen under the influence of giants of our community, such as Pastor Don Brady, Ujru Nunuckle, Uncle Steve Mam, 
and Uncle Don Davidson. Decades later, Dad remained in awe of those leaders who were fearless in their advocacy against the Act. At a time when it was dangerous to protest in Queensland, those aunts and uncles would risk suffering the violence of the Queensland Police Service. Dad had, already, had also been inspired by the civil rights movement in America. He often reminisced about meeting African-American soldiers who came to Brisbane for respite during the Vietnam War. It was through those meetings that Dad learnt about the American Black Panthers and found parallels between their experiences and his own. Together with Uncle Dennis Walker, Dad founded the Brisbane chapter of the Australian Black Panthers in 1970. At the time, there was much speculation in the media that the Panthers were in favour of violence. Most of this speculation was unfounded. The stories that I grew up hearing were about breakfast programs for children, reading as much of the American literature as they could get their hands on, and strategies of resistance against racist police practices. Together with other courageous individuals, the Panthers monitored arbitrary arrests of Indigenous people and organised free legal representation provided by volunteer lawyers and law students. The year 1972 would be momentous for Dad. He became a father with the birth of Samuel Wagan. Before then, however, Dad would go to the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in what was then the lawns of the Commonwealth Parliament. It was not an easy decision for my dad to go to Canberra. My mum, Cathy, was pregnant and they made the difficult decision for her to stay in Brisbane. But the embassy would become a crucial chapter in dad's life. It was at the embassy that dad formed lifelong bonds with other young Aboriginal people from Melbourne and Sydney, who, like dad, had been mentored by older leaders, such as Uncle Chica Dixon. He also made friendships with individuals in the unions, the Australian Labor Party, and students at the Australian National University. Dad would often reminisce about the generosity of members of the public who would turn up to the embassy with home-cooked meals. When I have watched footage of my father at the embassy, it has struck me that even though he was only 20 years of age, Dad had already become a charismatic figure. He had mastered the art of delivering short, witty sentences that would make terrific sound bites. Dad exuded confidence and strength. I can only imagine how empowering it would have been for Indigenous people in Queensland to watch the embassy staff on the nightly news bulletins. After enduring decades of the Protection Acts and being treated like children by tyrants such as Caloran, it must have been inspiring to watch the young activists speak with eloquence and fearlessness. The young activists who seized the nation's attention never retired from the work that was begun on the lawns of Parliament House in 1972. With others, they would go on to build the foundations of community organisations that deliver legal representation and health care. In the 1990s, they contributed to important debates about how sovereignty should be recognised and the promise and flaws of the Keating government's response to the Mabo decision. They mentored young people and encouraged us to believe in ourselves. Most people will be fortunate to achieve greatness in a single area 
if at all. But the individuals from the embassy were Renaissance men and women who left a mark on the arts, literature, education, and so many other fields of endeavour. Throughout his life, Dad published an award-winning novel, wrote a screenplay for a short film, and saw two of his plays performed to audiences in Brisbane. He contributed to community organisations such as Link Up, an organisation that he adored because it was responsible for reuniting survivors of the stolen generations with their loved ones. And Dad never lost his zest for rallies. Each year, Dad would be at the forefront of the Invasion Day rally through the streets of Brisbane. As proud as I am of those giants and all that they achieved through their activism, I think that it's important that we don't gloss over the violence that they suffered or the price paid by their loved ones for their contributions to the struggle. Because of the trauma that Dad experienced, he could not always be the loving father that he wanted to be. But despite everything, Dad retained a gentleness and an endearing innocence that would sometimes conflict with his politics. Dad would denounce Christmas as an obscene exercise in consumerism and then spare no effort in decorating a Christmas tree that would take up most of the space in our living room. He would argue that birthdays were meaningless but would spend a great deal of time writing beautiful messages in the birthday cards that he sent to me to each year until his passing. Dad departed from this world on the 27th of November 2019 and there are no words to describe the grief caused by his passing. Two months later, thousands of people marched through the streets of Brisbane to acknowledge Invasion Day. Before the march began, Dad's grandson, Samuel Waripa Watson, addressed the crowd. After acknowledging those who are no longer with us, Sam reminded the crowd of the importance of solidarity among not only Indigenous peoples, but all communities that experience marginalisation. He reminisced about the times that he would see Dad at rallies that demanded marriage equality and an end to Australia's oppressive refugee policies. Samuel reminded us that Dad knew that an injury to one is an injury to all. It was at that moment that it dawned on me that the fire within the warriors of the tent embassy continues to flicker brightly within the voices of their grandchildren. And for that, I am very grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nicole. What a wonderful insight into such a great man. And it was remiss of me before when I was introducing Nicole to not mention that much like her talented family, she's also a writer. On top of all the other things I said she's achieved, she's also a published author as well in the tradition of um, her family who includes some great writers, not just her father, but of course her brother as well. Now it's time for me to um, introduce Gunnar Maynard, which is a great privilege 
privilege as well. And for those of you who haven't heard of Gunnar yet, you are going to remember the time where you came here and heard him because I'm sure you'll hear a lot from him in the future as well. But he's already made an impressive mark. He's a Gamilaroi man, but he grew up on the state's eastern coast. Although he is the youngest member of the panel today, as I said, he's already made an impressive contribution. Pauline and I often joke that we're young aunties and we keep an eye out on the next generation. I have to say that um, Gunnar's been on our radar for a while because um, of his uh, impressive contribution. He's already been in a variety of professional, academic and community roles, including working in the area of land rights, cultural heritage, treaty making, uh, of course, the very public and national constitutional change agenda, but also working on issues like criminal incarceration, uh, sentencing and incarceration. He's worked as a researcher within the Academy and uh, at places like the Australian Law Reform Commission, the Kimberley Land Council, ANU and UNSW. He's worked at a top-tier international law firm, uh, but also was an associate in the Federal Court of Australia. So you can see how he's already getting a breadth of experience. And he has, of course, an interest in history and in activism. Not surprisingly, since he is the next generation, the upcoming generation of a family that has made a contribution to Indigenous rights and the community over generations, both in terms of changing the political landscape and being involved in our first national Indigenous rights movement that also had international connections to a family that has been changing the academic landscape profoundly and influencing a generation of scholars like myself. So big footsteps to follow in, but I'm sure you'll be as impressed with Gunnar as we are. So I'll hand over to you now. Thanks very much for that introduction, Larissa. That's very kind. And um, when I was invited to this uh, panel, I thought I'd um, talk about one really significant part of my family, my, my parents, John Maynard and uh, Victoria Haskins. And the name of the panel, Children of the Revolution, might also perhaps in my case be more aptly called the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren of the revolution. My parents are both historians and the history that they wrote was about the legacy of their respective families and their contributions to Aboriginal activism in this country. My father is uh, uh, an emeritus professor at the University of Newcastle and he wrote about Indigenous political activism and Indigenous sports persons. But his career really began with a PhD thesis on uh, the story of his grandfather, Fred Maynard, who was the president of the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. This story, before my father researched it was relatively unknown or better said relatively forgotten and he was inspired to write his dissertation by his father Mervyn Maynard because Pop Merv had understood the significance of the story and knew that it wasn't in the public consciousness in the way perhaps that it should be and this research uncovered a really significant beginning to quite a coherent line of political activism in Aboriginal politics. Fred Maynard, as president of the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, was one of the first Aboriginal activists to articulate 
as Larissa mentioned, a national plan for Aboriginal self-determination. And his focus was on the end to uh, forced removal of Aboriginal children from their families by the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Board and also on economic independence and demands for Aboriginal land rights, specifically the demand that every Aboriginal family should have its own land to work on, um, which at the time was strongly influenced by the success of Aboriginal farm holdings uh, in New South Wales and also in South Australia, another part of Aboriginal history that had been forgotten before my father's research. My mother, Victoria Haskins, is non-Indigenous and she wrote about her great-grandmother, another non-Indigenous woman, who in the 1930s became a leading activist for Aboriginal citizenship rights after forming really profound and strong relationships with the Aboriginal women and girls who'd been assigned to work in her household by the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Board. The story of Joan Kingsley Strack, better known to her family as Ming, was another story that had had really been forgotten. But in my mum's research, she uncovered really early links between the Aboriginal activists on the uh, uh, Aborigines Progressives Association, a later organisation well known for the activism of Bill Ferguson and Pell Gibbs and her great-grandmother and uncovered the kind of sustained lobbying and sustained agitation for the end to force removal of Aboriginal women and girls. This research inspired my mum to head overseas and continue her research of domestic service and its link with settler colonial policies by uncovering some also hitherto forgotten archival material about a program called the Outing Program in North America, which was a scheme to remove Native American women and girls from their families and place them in domestic service in American households, not unlike the Australian uh, experience. And when I reflected on what, it, what, what the work of my parents meant for activism and revolution, it really prompted me to think about what impact history has, what role history has in the agitation for change, what role public consciousness of our history has for nation building and for how we see ourselves as Australians and how Aboriginal people see themselves by reference to heroes whose stories, as I've said a couple of times now, were erstwhile forgotten stories, really. And I think I really understood the significance of uh, my parents' work and the role that history has to play when I moved out of home. I guess that's another way of saying, like many children, I didn't really get to know my parents until I left home. I moved down to Sydney to follow in my parents' footsteps and study history uh, and I matriculated at the University of New South Wales where I also enrolled in a law degree and over the course of my studies I was assigned readings from from mum and dad not only in my history degree but also in my law degree. My, My dad's work on Fred Maynard would appear in constitutional law textbooks 
tracking the history of Aboriginal demands for self-determination back to the 1920s. My mother's work on stolen wages and domestic service would appear in journal articles written by professors in equity and trusts and um, their writings on private law redress schemes. And level of abstraction, the way that these stories, and, and perhaps I could draw our analogies just with what we've heard today from Nicole and Pauline, our consciousness of this activism can inspire not only change, but a, a security that probably comes from continuity. When you understand how long patterns of activism have continued for, and even stories of resistance that ultimately didn't lead to change, or perhaps not ultimately, but immediately didn't lead to change. The story of Fred Maynard in my um, father's research ends relatively abruptly in 1927 when Fred disappears from public life in the face of sustained persecution by the New South Wales police. Likewise, the story of Ming ends similarly abruptly in 1940 when the pressures exerted again by the police in their work with the New South Wales Aborigine Protections Board also results in her withdrawal from public life. If those stories of resistance seem forlorn in their sudden end, I think as um, the great uh, and, and popular essayist Rebecca Solner has recently written about, we can take a great degree of hope from the continuity of resistance and from stories about, I think, I think in some ways it's, it's, it's stories about challenging systems that you see still continue today. And the challenges that Fred and Ming mounted to the New South Wales Aborigine Protection Board are challenges that are still mounted against forced removal under different auspices today in Aboriginal communities across the country. And that brings me to the, the, the legacy of their work, which is really a legacy of, of truth-telling and memorialisation. Now, of course, the work of the New South Wales Aborigine Protection Board in particular was examined by the uh, Human Rights Commission in the Bringing Them Home report, but it's still an organisation whose impacts are relatively unknown, and part of that is because of its under-research, and another part of that is by a quite deliberate destruction of, of documents and the absence of documents that weren't created in its records. My, my parents at the moment are researching the, the APB and the, the type of truth-telling that's coming out of their examination of the archives, but also um, the oral histories with survivors. And I know, um, speaking of Pauline before this panel, there's similar work going on in, in your work, Pauline, underpins the kind of truth-telling that's being called for in the Uluru Regional Dialogues um, and the, the, that was ultimately articulated in the Uluru Statement and also goes to not only reconciliation in Australia and the meaningful place of our people in our country but also, more broadly, the story of, as I said at the start of this, nation building, building up our consciousness as Aboriginal people about what has happened in this country, but also the, the resistance and the leadership that's been demonstrated by our forerunners and, and the legacy that we continue on today.
One thing to add to that is that they, all of our parents, they didn't believe in just reconciliation but reconciliation, that they were doers within the community, that they worked within their own community as well as the broader community. They knew each other. Like, you know, I was talking on the phone this morning to mum and dad. They were like, tell John, you know, I'm like, no, it's the son. <laughs> you know, like, but they know all of the, you know, they knew each other. They were engaged with each other. They understood the importance of solidarity on the national front. And the goals and the representations still mean something. And uh, I think that's something that, was always holds strong. You know, when you think of Sam, you always think of him doing something. He was always he was always running around, you know, like at a protest or, you know, doing something, you know. And the same with Uncle John, you know, I think that's something that is really important in the way in which they were doers in our community and gave us the strength to understand that you can't just talk about it. You gotta be a part of a part of the movement. I'm mindful that we're almost out of time, which is a which is a devastating thing to discover. But um, I just thought, just off the back of that, Pauline, I might just see if Nicole is going to have a reflection like that too. I just would say, I think one thing that's been amazing in terms of the stories side by side is what amazing partnerships your parents had. I think that came through as a really nice theme, and there's a lot we could get into on that. But anyway, <laughs> it's a good thing to note. What about you, Nicole? I've been struck by uh, a lot of things, actually, in this past hour, and it's been quite emotional. But I'm struck by their incredible energy. And this really was a, a lifelong commitment. I know of some activists who might spend a few years, um, you know, being foot soldiers in a movement and, and then their lives move on. But for our parents, it's, it's a lifelong commitment. And I, I'm just in awe of their extraordinary energy. Gunnar, did you have any final observations thinking of the whole three stories together? Yeah, well, I think it's exactly as you said, Larissa, the the interconnection and particularly reflecting on the the work of Sam and Joyce, it's often the same issues that are being prosecuted over over decades, over almost a century. You know, perhaps as I alluded to, from one perspective, it's a cause for despair, frankly, that um, the same claims are still being made, the same basic demands are being repeated without a very satisfactory answer. But there's a choice to be made by uh, the next generation of activists to adopt a mentality of optimism in the face of what otherwise might cause despair and to take great heart from and inspiration from people like like Joyce, like Sam, like Ming and like Fred, um, continue to champion these causes and, and demand change. That's lawyer and associate in the Federal Court of Australia, Gunnar Maynard. He was speaking as part of the panel discussion Children of the Revolution held at the Australian Museum as part of the Unsettled Talk series. You also heard from filmmaker Associate Professor Pauline Clegg and Director of Neurogilly Academic Programs at UNSW, Nicole Watson. To take us out, some music from Jimmy Little.
out when I was cleaning dishes And the phone rang in the hall I was drawn to it against my wishes Ugly memories of the wall I didn't count on mass destruction When I saw you It was the way I made you feel I hadn't seen such mass destruction Till I saw you It was the way I made you Went to town past the old cafe That existed to service the old highway And what they were saying for all these years was true They never were the good old days as such I didn't count on this destruction When I saw you was the way I Such mass destruction Till I saw you Was the way I made you feel The way I made you feel The way I made you feel The way I made you feel
the show for this week. Join us again next week when we preview a new oral history and multimedia project titled The Songlines of Country. Songlines of Country tracks three significant songlines. So we're tracking the water snakes, the Adnamutna people called the Akaras from the Flinders Ranges and their journeys over into um, the corner country around Tipperborough. And then as they journey further into the Darling River, into the Barker system, where the the water snakes uh, separate and when one goes south and one goes north, and then we follow the the snake that travels north and becomes the Wawai in Niamba country around Brewarana and then up into the Colgoa along the, the Nadu, the Colgoa River at Woolmeringal and the Murawari people called the, the water snake, the Mundagata, as well as we track the seven sisters where those um, their paths cross over and they intersect and the, the sites of significance. And we also track Biami, um, the great creator, has he journeys from uh, a place called Gundabuka to a place called Byrock and then over to the, the fish traps, um, Biami's Nunu at Brewarana. And that's where the Songlines Project finishes. Speaking Out is produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.